Revelation, chapter 20 now, verse 7. We're going to look at this, this whole chapter in context together here so we can know who's being judged. We're going to talk about this great white throne judgment. I remember one of the things that I knew early on as a child about the Bible was something about the great white throne judgment. I didn't know what it was, but there's always this whole thing that they talk about from time to time, the great white throne judgment. And then later you learn that some kind of an end time judgment thing, the great white throne judgment. And then you have this idea, it's like, okay, um, sinners outside of Christ will be judged um, by the holiness of God. But somehow, what about believers? We're going to be judged too. what happens. I remember um, as a, a child and a teenager and maybe even sometimes even, you know, on bad times today, um, thinking that you go to heaven and uh, there's going to be this big screen up there, bigger than that, for everybody to see, and they're going to show videos of all your sins, everything you've said, everything you've ever done. It's going to be laid up there. It's going to be shameful and terrible. And it's as if the last thing I want to do is go to heaven because they're going to do that thing first. It's like, so is that what happens? You know, so this is uh, one of the things that, you know, if you have questions like that, that's why you need to be in the Bible, reading the Bible, looking for answers to those sorts of things. Any question you have about God as you're reading the Scripture, as you ought to be doing regularly, um, these questions you bring to the Word. And then what the Word will do is bring other questions up. Some questions will get answers, others pop up, you know. And so... The Word of God speaks to us. And so I'm going to read beginning in verse, chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. That's the, the abyss. Um, in a great chain. And he seized the dragon. I don't like to interrupt the Word of God like this when I'm reading, but I do want you to do this. As you're reading this, don't keep trying. I've said this a few times. The more you try to read this and go, okay, wait a minute, what's this representing? Who is this? And what's this happening? You know, it's so much distraction that can be done by trying to interpret. And so sometimes, and particularly here, what you need to do is just, just let it say what it says. It's a dragon. Okay, dragon. <laughs> you, know, you know what a dragon is, right? Okay, he's got a dragon. You know what a chain is? You know what an abyss is? You know what these things are? Don't try to make all the application. Just, just listen to it, and then we'll look back and we'll try to make the application. So I think it, it even makes a little more sense when we do it like that. So I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. <coughs> he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Okay, so we've got this. This is the millennium. We looked at this last time. But this is the thousand years. During this thousand years, Satan, the dragon, has been bound, and it's a seal over it. And we said sealing represents authority, so God has authority, ownership over this. He's in control of this dragon, and he cannot deceive the nations until a thousand years are up, we said, okay, this is the time of the gospel, um, the time of the ascension of Jesus Christ, the right hand of God, to the time, the last day, when Satan is let loose a little while. But for now, we live in a time of grace, and a day of grace where the gospel can go forth with great power. The gospel being the power of God and to salvation for the nations. Doesn't mean Satan doesn't still blind the people. It's also, we went through this, I'm not going to re-preach that sermon for long, but... The God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So Satan is alive and well at work in the world, but 
his ability to be able to deceive the nations has been greatly curtailed in such a way that that thing that he wants to do cannot be done in the way that he wants to do it. And so we looked at this word deceive the nations and it's this word planaro, which means um, planero, which means like the planets wander around. He can't grab them and move them and drag them and deceive them into attacking in a unified measure and defeat the church. The church will continue until the last day and then we're, we're received in the glory and the new heavens and the new earth. All these things that happen, there will always be a church in the world. Um, it, there will not be a time when it is defeated by evil and it's just gone. And so today is a day of salvation. Today is a day of grace. Go out, share the gospel, promote missions, promote missionaries, global, local, everything we can do, gospel-centered, gospel-focused ministry so that people's lives are saved, so that um, souls are brought into the kingdom. There are those out there that God is calling to himself. The fields are white and the harvest. It is workers, so pray that they are lacking. Um, <laughs> thought about this. Here's a sermon analogy that I bet lots of people have used. Everywhere you go, you see signs that say what? Help wanted. <laughs> help. What do you mean help wanted? There's lots of people that have... That's this. Help wanted. Looking for people to share the gospel with the world. The field. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field. Not to go working at you know, restaurants and stores, although that's needed too, but to get to work to share the gospel with people. If you don't share the gospel, it shows a lot about what we believe about the gospel. It shows a lot about our love for the world. And so we have to be very careful with this kind of thing because then he will be released for a little while. Okay, so something at the very end is going to be you know, coming. Meantime, he's bound. Four, <laughs> then I saw thrones and seated on them were those whom had the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and those who had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. All right, these are the believers that have died. What about them? Now, this is something I want you to recognize about the book of Revelation too, particularly as this is about judgment. Um, what we're going to see is um, there's... A lot of preaching and evangelism happens saying it's kind of the turn or burn type of thing. And that's not necessarily wrong, but it's not complete either. Um, that there is, you know, hell, there is judgment, there is the wrath of God. You don't want that. Turn to Jesus or else you're going to go to hell. You're going to receive great judgment. Now, okay, <laughs> but... You don't just turn to Christ to escape judgment. You turn to Christ because he's glorious and beautiful, forgiving your sins, and this is the only hope that you have. So this is it. Then what Revelation is saying about judgment is, I know this life is hard. I know you're being persecuted. I know people are being put to death in your midst for this. I know it looks like evil is winning at times. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know, I know, I know. And I'm going to set all this right. This is going to be set right. And in these chapters here, we see Satan being defeated, the beast being defeated, the false prophet being defeated. So it's not just the powers behind these powers, but the things that, that Satan uses in this world to, to accomplish his purposes. Trying to mimic the Holy Trinity. But remember, what God uses in this world to accomplish his purposes is what? The church, the church, the church. God's primary, only solution to the sin problem in this world. And we are to be sharing the gospel. So judgment that we see here 
is to show us God is saying, I know, and I'm in control, and I'm going to set things right. And then the thing for us, we ought to do is kind of go, uh-oh, <laughs> I see him sitting within. I wonder, am I going to get called up into this? I need one. <laughs> What's my judgment? What's happening to me? So then it's like, you better make sure you're in Christ. You better make sure you understand the gospel, and we better make sure that we understand what these things are. So this is what we're being told. Verse 5, the rest of the dead, so these are who? The non-believers. These who have died, and, but they aren't believers. These people did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. And then he closes by saying, this is the first resurrection. Not talking about the people that came to life later. He's talking about what I've been talking about. So in parentheses, the rest of them didn't come to life until later. We're going to look at them in a minute. But this first resurrection is when you die. Today you'll be with me in glory. Okay? Um, uh, what, today you'll be with me in paradise. What Jesus says uh, on the cross. Paradiso being the Greek word for garden. The garden of Eden called the paradise of God. You'll be with me back in this great mountain worship presence of God at our death. And judging, I mean, so this is what we had to look forward to now at our death is seated in heaven on thrones, ruling, unlike Satan, who is in a dark pit, prowling about like a roaring lion, presenting himself as an angel of light, trying to deceive. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. So reigning with Christ in heaven. Then verse 7. <clears throat> when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so we see in that little, here's a fun word, pericope, that little section of scripture, that little paragraph right here, we see the, the judgment at the end times. But there's a strange thing that seems to be happening at the end, where at the very end, and it's a very short time too, where Satan is released. Now, you may be familiar with other eschatological systems, other end time ways of looking at things, all tend to be based around this millennial idea, this millennium. The, the pre-millennium, the church is going to be raptured up before the thousand years. and then say, So all these things get kind of, you know, they're, they're different. But then we all agree at the end, Jesus is coming back. So the position that we're taking, I'm taking here, our church takes the, the typical um, the conviction of the church for centuries is this position that what we're looking at here is this is a reign of this is the time of Jesus is reigning on the throne now. He's in heaven. He's reigning in heaven and through the church in the world as we still are battling. But what we see happening is <clears throat> the thousand years ended, Satan will be released from his prison. They'll come out to deceive the nations. That word again is drawing them out together. He's been trying to do this all along from the four corners of the earth. That means the whole world. This isn't going to be like China or Russia or, you know, it's, it's, this is a spiritual battle where all the forces of Satan are all from all around the world are being gathered. Remember, this is, a, this is um, the book of Revelation. This is supposed to give you a picture 
of what this looks like. Not saying that this is, you know, this nation and that nation and that nation. This is Satan getting the world so much together against the church that he's actually able to get the entire world unified in contradiction to Jesus Christ and the church. To begin a worldwide global persecution that won't last long because God's going to put it to an end quickly. But, if you see it, he deceives the nations from all the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Man, that sounds just terrible. Gog and Magog. There's nothing else. You know, that's, those, aren't, those guys aren't good. Don't name your children Gog and Magog. They'll be laughed at. They don't sound like good guys. It's Gog and Magog. Now, if, and you look all this up and, and, and read it and try to figure it out, it's not hard to do. If you just do a word search for Gog and Magog, it'll take you straight to Ezekiel 38 and 39. So, oh, there they are. Then you got to dig a little deeper because it's Hebrew and stuff like this. And without boring you and going into a lot of stuff that I don't completely understand, Gog was a person, Magog was a place. But whenever the Hebrews would talk about Gog and Magog, it would be like us talking about Hitler. You knew what he's talking about. Oh, that person, that over there, that's, that's a, he, he's a Hitler. Well, these nations and these things, yeah, that's a Gog and Magog. So if you're talking about Gog and Magog, what the, the Jewish mind would immediately spring to would be, yes, that's the time when it was prophesied by Ezekiel that all of these nations would be gathered together like the sands of the sea, and they would all come together against Israel. But then, and it did prophesy a particular person that and this did happen in history, so these nations came, and even Gog and Magog was a prophetic name given to somebody else, but they were destroyed quickly which Ezekiel prophesied would be with fire coming from heaven. And so what John does in the book of Revelation here, as he has done in lots of other places, is say, we're going to use the Old Testament prophetic books to interpret what I'm talking about. And so what he's talking about is a time when, as Israel was attacked by so many nations, now the whole church is going to get it. And this will be an end time thing. And this is going to be everybody coming at it. And that was just a little picture of what's going to happen in the end time. And the way I destroyed them is going to be nothing compared to how I'm going to destroy them in the very last day, in the day of Christ. And so verse 9, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints. That's interesting. Camp, that's a word from the Old Testament. Um, when Israel was in this um, wilderness wanderings. And Hebrews talks about that a lot. Kind of gives us the idea in the book of Hebrews that that's kind of where the church is in this wilderness wanderings. Uh, we're on the way to the promised land. Um, there are battles to fight. There's faith to, to hang on to. There's manna from heaven. There's the bread of life. All these things that were pointed in the Old Testament, they're all pointing to Jesus Christ. The water that came from the rock. The rock is Christ. The faith is Christ. All these things, that was what's so wonderful about the book of Hebrews is you know, going and taking all this Old Testament things that happened and saying these all were examples for us to see what the church would be when Jesus comes. And then he says, and you're under attack, you're being followed, you got the Red Sea, that's our baptism, all these things are just connected. So if you just take your Old Testament and don't ever use it, you'll, I don't know how you understand most of the New Testament. And so... What we see here is God saying, I am going to draw all the wicked nations. Satan's going to come out and he's going to come full assault and he's going to gather all the people together in such a way that the world, the universe, everybody, all the good following Christ will look and see that's got to end. It's time and it does. And then what happens is first the camp of the saints 
And then we're called the beloved city. And when the first one's focused on is the word beloved. By who? By God himself. The beloved city. City, and we start thinking Jerusalem. Okay, yes, but we're not talking about Jerusalem. Jesus rode into Jerusalem as the king on the back of the donkey to pronounce that he was coming as the king of peace. And he was going to ascend to not just the throne there in Israel, but to a greater throne, the throne on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as he is crucified, dead, and buried, descends into death, and then is raised on the third day, and then uh, 40 days later ascends to the Father, to the right hand of the Father, seated on thrones, the, the throne of the Lamb who is crucified, standing as though crucified. So he is there, he loves us, and we are a city. A camp is one of those, it's like a military type thing too, but you're on the move, you're doing these things. And then, but the city is sure foundation. The city is set still. The city is surrounded by a wall. The city is protected. So we're both of these things. But we're a beloved city. So as the world begins, followed by Satan, devoted, <coughs> gathered together by Satan to do this last throw. And you can kind of see, I mean, in our day, I'm not saying, I don't know when the end of time is, but it, you can see storm clouds gathering. You can see how it's actually, I mean, we've, they've talked about how these things could happen in the past. And now you kind of see it's like, wow, it's really possible more and more to do global, worldwide hatred of a particular group of people who might not agree with whatever you're trying to do. Whatever it may be. And eventually, it's going to be the church. Everybody else will just eventually just say, yes and amen, state, tell us what to believe. You know, we'll follow you. You're our hope, you're our salvation, you're our God. And that's what Satan wants. Then, one day, but the believer is going to have to stand up to that and say, I know what you want me to say, but I can't say it. I know who you want me to be, but I can't be it. I know that you want me to bow down to this theology or this ideology, but I can't do it. I know that you want me to stop this, but God tells me to keep doing it. I know you want me to start doing that, but God says no. I know you want me to worship you, but I worship Christ alone and Satan's just not going to have that. Now, a lot of people experience that today. Great persecution, great tribulation. But Jesus walks in the midst of his churches. That's how Revelation starts, and we're candles. But in this last day, he is saying what will happen when he finally gets to this point where he's releasing Satan to say, do it! Fire descends from heaven and consumes them. And the devil who had deceived them, all these nations, all these people against them, he's thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, which we've seen in a couple other places already in Revelation, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they, and that can also be translated as are, where they are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here we have the defeat of Satan. So we have, you know, the first thing that happens in this next scene, verse 11, then I saw a great white throne. Well, let's read this next part. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's names was not found, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so again, this is the scene of judgment. And this is that great white throne judgment. So let's take a look in context with what we're, we're going through here. I saw a great white throne. Great is a word in Revelation that means ginormous. <laughs> it's this huge, powerful, white, is holy, it's, it's holiness, it's a the throne, it's kingship, it's power. Uh, I think the word throne at this point has been used over 30 times in Revelation. It always is talking about a position of great power. And so here we have this great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them. So we've seen this as well. This um, In uh, Revelation 6, 14, the sky is rolled away. And um, 16, 20, we see these things happening again. Um, I wanted to sing in the sky. How's that go? Roll back like a scroll. It is well of my soul. As he uses this imagery of this last day when the sky shall be rolled back like a scroll. And so God is setting things right. So evil has been judged. The wicked have been condemned. And what we see here, well, the, the nations have been judged. All these powers that have been at work behind everything are cast into the lake of fire and dealt with. And now before the consummation of all things, before the, the glory of heaven is finally revealed, we're going to have to deal with, with people. And so this is what's happening, this last judgment that's taking place. But before this happens, we see the sky rolling back. Second Peter 3.10 says that all the elements dissolve in a great heat. Uh, Matthew 19.28, there's a regeneration of new world Acts 3.21, there's a restoration of all things. Romans 8.21, a deliverance from the bondage of corruption. So all these end time things that are taking place, there's going to be a, a glorification. It's like when the body dies, but we're, we're uh, resurrected, we have resurrected bodies, like people who have died, they return to dust. But God takes that and glorifies, and we are recreated in some sort of glorified body. In the same way, all the heavens and the earth will have the same thing. As it is rolled away and done away with, we believe also in this world without end idea. But it is a world that has been rolled away, dissolved, as the body dies, so this creation dies, but it is resurrected and glorified and created again. So, and that's what we'll see in the rest of Revelation is, you know, these ideas that we have about heaven, you know, what is what, what's the after? What, what's next? Not just after we die, but after, you know, we're in heaven, we're ruling, something's going on in heaven now, and it's great, and it's glorious, and you're in the presence of Christ. But after all that, the last day, now the new stuff is happening. That's the thing that's beyond our ability to reason. But Revelation gives us little pictures of these things. In verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. All right, so in the context, the dead here are the non-believers. So this great white throne judgment, this part of it that's being focused on here is the judgment of the non-believer. So the dead. Remember what it said um, up in the first part, verse 5 of this chapter, the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. Now we're at the end of a thousand years. All this has happened. And now I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
And then another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged by what's written in the books according to what they had done. So the idea of books is like, I don't know what we'd use today for instead of books. It's on your hard drive, hard drives at your computer. I mean, we don't have the, the cloud. <laughs> all the information, all the data that has been gathered about you through your entire life, not only the things you have done, but everything you've thought, tasted, sensed, anything, um, it's there. You know, I mean, I think it's, it's, it is easier to see that this actually is possible technologically today than the enormous size of the books that would be needed back then. And so I think God's probably ahead of us technologically. But it's very, very simple for these books to be opened. And the point being, these, this is a permanent thing. Things that you have done, you will be judged. Every careless thought, word, deed will come under the very righteous judgment. God's not going to be, he's going to be overly it's like he's not going to be too hard. He's not going to be too judgmental. He's not going to be too holy. He's not going to be too righteous. He's going to be perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, which is terrible for somebody who is much more perfectly unjust than, than we might think when we talk about total depravity as a theological idea that men are completely lost. I remember... Amy knows what I want to say. She's reading children's catechisms with kids when they're little. Um, what was the question? How sinful are you by nature? I think. I am depraved in every part of my being. Comes out. I am corrupt. Thank you for correcting my catechism. The, I am corrupt. Because that's a good word. I am corrupt in every part of my being. I just happened to be walking past the bedroom and she was reading it to the children. They're like, I am corrupt in every part of my being. Even little Ian. It's like enchanted. Like, what? I said, I remember saying, I said, well, that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? And my wife, ever so loving and kind, says, oh, yeah, what part of you is holy? I was like, I will walk away now. <laughs> I was like, yeah. we compare ourselves to other children, our children to other children. We don't compare ourselves to the holiness of God, holiness of God, the white, hot, beautiful, amazingly, perfectly pure holiness of God. And that's our problem. We lost that original righteousness that allowed us to be in the presence of a holy God. And here's that holy God now, a great white throne judgment, and the books are open. And people can stand there and they can make excuses all they want to. Well, I did this because, uh-uh. And then I thought, uh-uh. I thought this. No, according to this, you were actually thinking this. Oh, well, yeah, but you know, oh, yeah, according to, using your own thoughts against you. Either excusing you or condemning you at this thing. You know. <laughs> That's just like, there used to be this TV show, a game show. What was it about the lie detector thing? Did you ever see that? <laughs> a couple episodes, I think, some of it. It's like you hook somebody up to a, to a uh, lie detector, and then you, you know, for you know, the first question, we're going to ask you a question, and if you answer it, then we're going to keep going. So they ask you something. And then the questions start, you know, do you, do, you, do you think your wife's sister is more pretty than your wife? I'm out. It's <laughs> pulling wires. You know, they get to a certain point where they're like, I don't, there's only, people think, I can win a million dollars by being perfectly truthful. And all of a sudden, they start digging a little deep in what truth is. And they're like, yeah, no, I can't, I can't go but so far. And this has to be the, the situation for a believer who's come to Christ, that you know if you had to stand before a holy God purely on your own, and Jesus lets you go, and you're clothed on your own, and you have to answer for every thought, word, and deed. It's not just one thing that, that would clearly condemn you. It is everything would just be condemning. There's nothing in you that could stand to that white hot judgment. Nothing. 
Even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. Without faith, it's impossible to even please God. That's why it's so important that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. The book of life that he died when he entered into that city. He was triumphant because of what he was going to do. He would give himself on the cross, a sacrifice for our sins so that we would not stand before him in judgment. We were judged in Christ when he was there on the cross. And when he rose from the dead, he rose showing his righteousness and holiness and perfect salvation, conquering death, and he rises for our justification so that we are declared innocent. The dead were judged by what's written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. So everybody sees death and Hades. Um, we've seen them elsewhere in death and punishment um, personified. And it's given up the dead who were in them. They were judged. Even death and Hades were judged. And then they're thrown into the lake of fire. Even death. The death of death. I think John Owen, the death, wrote the death of death and the death of Christ. And this we see even it judged. And this is a second death, a lake of fire. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into a lake of fire. So, believer, if your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, you come to him, you're trusting in him alone for salvation, your name is in the book of life. That's the judgment. And so, uh, last few minutes here. Um, Hebrews 9, 27. So find the book of Hebrews, real close to Revelation. James is in between there. Hebrews chapter 9, 27. We read this. And just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So this is a verse you should have memorized. Everybody's going to die, and then comes judgment. Verse 28. So I want to linger there a second. Let's, this is important to the gospel. You will die. Okay? You're going to die. Unless the Lord returns and we're all crawled up at that time, you will die and you will face judgment because God is holy. And so think about that. Look at the insanity of evil. I was reading a book and it was talking about the insanity of evil. Satan knows it's useless. I've often thought, why? Why would Satan even do that? He knows he can't do it because he's insane. Evil makes you crazy. It's like you can't, you can't think straight. It's just torn towards evil. All evil is like this. And yet he rages on and evil never really makes sense. It brings no lasting satisfaction or joy and it never ultimately succeeds. So the question is, what do you do to survive this? And you have to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, and this is what we're seeing, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So now we see this other side of this judgment. Okay, when He dealt with sin. Okay, not in the way that we're saying he's going to throw sinners into the lake of fire, because their sin is going to be dealt with like that. But for the church, for the believer, he dealt with sin that week when he went into Jerusalem and he went to the cross, he dealt with sin in his, in his sacrifice. So he, he was offered one time. We're not offering him again in the communion here. We're, we're commemorating and remembering what he has already done to save those who are doing what? Eagerly waiting for him. So you have to say, are you eagerly Waiting for Christ. And who would be eagerly waiting for this great right throne judgment? 
People who are going to be saved, people who get to see Christ, people who get to see Jesus, people who are longing for an end to be put to all the pain and problems and suffering of this world, remembering that we do still see the goodness of God in the land of the living. But are we eagerly awaiting or do you have a fearful expectation of judgment? Hebrews 10, 26, just above it here. But he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he says that if we do not, if we ignore such a great salvation, then we are to be most pitied. And then we go to Matthew 13, and we see this parable. So what about, um, let's see, Matthew 13, 24, real quick. Matthew 13, 24. I'm just going to start. I'm there. <laughs> he put another parable before them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds, or tares in some translations, and weeds among them, among the wheat, went away. And when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. The servant of the master house came and said, Master, didn't we sow good seed in your field? How do we have weeds? And he said, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then you want to go out and gather them up? He said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And in verse 36, he gives a translation. He left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy has sowed them who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is not just in Revelation. This is Jesus teaching in this parable as well. <clears throat> and then Matthew 25, verse 31. What about the judgment of the believers? So, Matthew 25, 31. <clears throat> when the Son of Man comes in His glory. That's what we're talking about. Great right throne judgment. Son of Man's coming. All the angels with Him. Then He will sit on His glorious throne. And before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. See, this is another image of this final judgment. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you drink? And he said, when you see a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothed. And he said, uh, they said, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king went to them. Truly, I say, you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He, he's, he's judging the believer on grace. The stuff that we did. But that's not what gets us in. It's very clear in the Bible. What gets you in is faith in Jesus Christ, clothed in his righteousness. 
But there are rewards and there are books and there are things that we will have done in faith as the Bible talks about building on the foundation of Christ. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It talks about 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17. Building on the foundation of Christ. That some people are going to have their works or they will be burned up. But there will be rewards for others. And so for the non-believer, and we see here, the wicked are going to say to him, when did we not do these things? I mean, that's the thing. A believer's belief is going to go, when did we do that? And the non-believer, when did we not do it? And they're like, because they're busy doing this stuff. The non-believer thinks everything they do, I'm helping the poor, I'm helping the everything I'm doing. Is trying. When do we not do these things? He's like, whenever you didn't do it for the least of these my brothers, whenever you did not do it. That's what's causing your condemnation. So it's good to do things. But if you're trying to do things to earn favor with God, the only way that that's going to earn favor with God is if it's done out of complete faith and it's done completely and without error, without, it just has to be done in complete faith. So anybody doing these things without faith in Christ gains nothing. Might help somebody that's hungry. Good. We need to help people who, who need help. But we also need to be aware of how, where our judgment will be for the believer. There are things that we have to be doing based on our faith in order to be able to prove to others that we're believers. But you don't do these things to prove to God that you're a believer. You don't earn salvation with these things. But, all right, we're going to have to go 1 Corinthians 3.10 just to see what he says, and then we'll close with that. 1 Corinthians 3.10. A Christian's works flows out of a relationship with the Holy Spirit. First um, Corinthians three ten. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. And this is talking about the faith, particularly and stuff. But for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the basis of our foundation. That's the basis, the foundation of our faith and our salvation. You get to heaven. Why should I let you in? Because Jesus died for my sins. That's it. Now, verse 12. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, um, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. That's awesome. So one of the things we'll look at later is, like, what are you talking about rewards? Heaven is my reward. That's it. Amen. Amen. But then there's even more <laughs> that is in heaven, the, re the rewards of these things that we did out of faith, maybe not even knowing what we did, but it was done out of faith in Jesus Christ for right so that for a believer, we can do good things. Anything we do out of faith, anything we do um, it's like even we can do things out of faith that was stupid, but we thought, I think even those things graciously can be rewarded. But if you have no faith and you're not really a believer, you're just saying you're a believer, you're saying you go to church, you're saying all these things, and then how do you show that? I do, 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 do. I do all this work. I do all these things. They can be great, glorious buildings, whatever you do and everything. And it's like, and so did you do it out of faith or did you do it to make yourself look good? Why did you do it? It can all just be completely gone. And then the widow's might. I just put, did one little thing or I just did this or something out of faith and it's like great reward. So this is being told to us 
I believe, a great deal in order to encourage us to continue not to give up doing good because God is at work. And don't get discouraged by people who seem to be hypocrites because we all play the hypocrite from time to time. But there are people in churches, there are people who make a grand view of being in Christ and doing all these things, and then they'll guilt you because you don't do everything they do. Yeah, be careful with this. Cling to Christ. Cling to your faith. Do what you believe you're called to do. Be in a church that helps you see these things. So if you start to go you know, too far one way or the other, others can kind of come along beside you and say, but then listen to them too. Be humble and listen. And, and then there's reward in heaven for these things. There's, you know, there's judgment on those who would cause evil to advance. For those who are outside of Christ, he will take care of that. But for the believer, it's nothing but magnificence. And what he gives us even in the supper we're going to come to now is a foretaste of heaven. This is the gospel. I give myself to you. I provide good things to you. You are mine. I am yours. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gospel. As we come to your table, we pray that you will, by faith, take us closer to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.